is from 1 Peter 3. We'll be reading verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a time of studying and the preached word this morning, would you open our hearts through your Holy Spirit to the truths we will learn from your word. As we consider baptism and the record of the gospel through the Old Testament into the New Testament, would you give us clarity as we hear from Pastor Adam? Would you give us open hearts? Help him to be able to communicate what he's been studying. Have your Holy Spirit empower him and us as listeners to surrender to the truths from your word. In Jesus' name. Well, um, as many of you know who have been with us, uh, I, I introduced this text, or we started on the text uh, about three weeks ago, and it just happened to be the way the timing was set up. It wasn't a great way to do things, um, to introduce a topic from a text and then take two weeks off and then kind of come back to it in the third week or so. Um, but it kind of in scheduling just kind of is what it is. I'm going to tell you this morning as I joined back to where we left off three weeks ago. I'm going to tell you this morning my argument, what I'm trying to accomplish with you this morning. I would like to save it later, and then maybe you'd say, ah, aha, that's convincing. Um, perhaps not, and I want it to be convincing. As I've mentioned many times as a minister, you're kind of in the business of convincing. You do believe in the call upon your life, and you do believe the things that you study, and you feel indeed as you stay within the history of the church that you're accurately interpreting and staying well within the stride of orthodoxy. Yet God is teaching you and growing you along the way to understand certain aspects and helpful pieces for your congregation. You believe these things to be true, and therefore you hope to convince. So I am going to seek to convince you this morning, and I'm going to hopefully convince you next Sunday as well as we kind of conclude our three-week kind of walk through this particular section of the text of 1 Peter 3. I am making an argument with you this morning for what is called covenant baptism. Many of you would anticipate this being my argument or me wanting to persuade you in this direction. Well, covenant baptism essentially means, once again, in the big picture, and I, again, I seek to persuade. I'll make no bones about that. Nonetheless, I grasp that some I will have success with persuading and others I will not, and so the cookie crumbles all throughout uh, the work of the ministry. But I am seeking to persuade you 
that the children who belong to believing parents are meant by God's design through the sacrament of baptism to be baptized and added to the church. We think of little ones uh, as members of the church. We see a little one in the back right there with father. And we think, oh yeah, these kids running around. The kids that almost knock you out after church. Running up and down, racing each other inordinately loud and jumping all over across the chairs. You think those little people who live here are members instinctually. You're right, instinctually. I'm hoping to press beyond the instinct and the impulse and I'm trying to give you a biblical rationale for why you should think they're members. But then more than that, not just that we should think them members, but that we should rightly constitute them as members. There is a difference between someone who attends church and someone who is baptized into the church. There's a distinction there. We may think someone a member due to attending, but then without being baptized, they're not a member. We see this all throughout the New Testament as the sign of membership whereby one receives the supper, not before he is baptized, but after as a member rightly constituted in the church. So again, we look at these little ones and think, of course they're members. They were born to mom and dad and they're in the church and you know they knock us down every day. They're members, they're great guys, gals, we love them, they're members. Yes, but no, knowing that they're, if they're not baptized, they're not members. Um, though we assume and treat them as such. I'm gonna make an argument this morning for their being baptized. Um, now I give you, that's what, I, I, I offer that to you up front, that, that that is where I want to land, that's where I have landed, that's where I'm trying to draw you and persuade you with me. Knowing full well, as you do in any time, some you will convince and others you won't, and so we'll walk hand in hand, nonetheless in tremendous fellowship one with another. I say that up front because I want you now to follow my rationale of how I got there. When you talk about baptism, as we are here, and you think, why are you speaking on baptism? Well, because Peter says, and baptism, which corresponds to this. So in order to understand what the correspondence is, we need to understand uh, what baptism is. Or the other way, we need to understand the correspondence in order to rightly understand what baptism is. Um, when you talk about baptism, of course, you know the divide within Protestantism. It is covenant baptism on the one hand. Uh, do little ones by birthright uh, within a believing household, should they be baptized and constituted as members of the church, or should they not be? Uh, and, and of course, the debate raging, is this a Roman Catholic holdover, uh, or is it truly grounded on biblical precedent and, and Protestant principle? And then you have another uh, wing well within the church that would say, no, they, they should wait to be baptized upon profession. An individual conversion that took place, they then profess the Lord as their Savior, and then they are to be rightly constituted as members of his congregation. They are therefore members. Um, you know this question. Uh, when, when then someone says, I would love to talk about baptism, um, I'll just say this and you know it intuitively. There's no one single text that causes one to formulate a vision and an understanding of the sacrament of baptism. Whether we're talking about believers only and exclusively, 
baptism? Like, like if I was to give a quiz right now, uh, and, and I said, okay, I'm passing out this sheet, and then you work your way through it, and then see how you define baptism at the end. Would everyone in here agree upon and rely upon the same statements in, te- uh, in the text to then formulate their statements on baptism? I would say I, I, no. But would everybody kind of arrive at a definition that's somewhat similar? Yes. Meaning, if I were to give you this text right here, 1 Peter 3, and say, aha, this is how you understand baptism, you'd say, well, maybe that helps, but I would need to take 1 Peter and plug it in to more passages on baptism to arrive at a conviction or a sense of a good faithful summary. You're right. So I seek to use this text to persuade you, but I fully understand. No one single text stands out as the single text that makes any man's case. So I'm going to make a case from this text. I'm going to show you the rationale of why Children that belong to believing parents need to be baptized. And then you can take my rationale from this text, wrestle with it, lay it to conscience, pray over it, and then consider it in light of other texts. Because it's not like, when I get done with my rationale here in a few moments, I don't want you to say to me, well, you forgot about this passage. Um, I didn't. I'm just not preaching that passage. I'm preaching this passage. And I'm preaching this passage on the grounds that it stands upon. I would argue that this then text fits into those other texts. It's just I can't deal with all those other texts because we have one text before us. So let me just say, from where I'm perched, this text works well within understanding baptism as a sacrament. Furthermore, it aids in understanding who is to be baptized. This text aids in answering that question. Finally, at the end of all of it, I hope we who are baptized truly grow to learn and love the sign of baptism. So if you're, if, let's say right now you're in a place where a believer's baptism only or exclusively or what we call direct faith baptisms exclusively is the, is the place and the rightful place of a person to be baptized. And that is you. Then I hope you treasure baptism more because of our time together. And if you are one who believes, indeed, that your children belonging to the covenant of grace, indeed, should be rightly constituted as members of your church, I hope you as well grow, are aided, and love the sacrament of baptism. Now, again, I mentioned a few weeks ago, we're seeking to understand more clearly just exactly, and I I, I do want to get precise this morning, very precisely, We're seeking to understand how baptism corresponds to the Noahic flood. Let me read the text for you that John just read just a moment ago, just once again to understand. Why are we pressing this issue that's been introduced uh, before you follow the rationale of how I draw my conclusions? Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. If you, if you go to that period of the day, uh, uh, the, and this is just kind of a side tangential thing, but the, 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 uh, the period of God's patience, I, I've argued in the book of Genesis, is that 120-year announcement. I, I, I'm saying in, in, in Genesis 6, the 120 years is not how long a human being could live. I'm saying that's the pronouncement of a period of patience, roughly the sketch of 120 years of God's patience. 
during which time Noah is preparing an ark. So you have this period of patience while the ark is being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Again, so we're asking the question, how does baptism correspond to the Noahic flood? Or perhaps more precisely, we're asking, how does eight persons being safely brought through water correspond to Christian baptism? You're asking this as a good reader. Let's say that you were reading this in your morning time or your afternoon time or your once a week time. Whatever time you're spending, you're reading through this text and you're working through it and you want to grow. And it says the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, Adam, corresponds to this. I'm asking myself, you're asking yourself, each one of us as students saying, how? How does baptism correspond to eight persons being safely brought through water? Now, again, so far, and and I just review these for you, I'm going to begin building my rationale. For I would love it to see little ones within a family unit be baptized. You know that's my end game. I've already outed myself. Now I'm going to begin building my rationale. We have already noted and established three things by examining the Genesis account. We did this three weeks ago, so I'll say them by way of refreshment, but you're able to go back to that sermon, download it, to see that these three pieces I'm now introducing to you were pieces that we drew out from the Noahic event. We went back to Genesis, and we did the digging in Genesis. These are the three pieces we extracted out, and we're saying, okay, now we're building on the case of understanding what took place with Noah. These three things, number one, What we found in the Genesis account with Noah, and we're seeking to understand Christian baptism in concert to these items, is number one, God forms a gracious covenant with Noah. You know that we're uh, in chapter 6, after the introduction of Noah being an upright individual, I forget the term, uh, he is blameless in his generation, and the time of uh, of judgment is coming upon the earth. Uh, and God will cleanse through the waters of judgment. Noah, however, found blameless, enters into covenant with God. You remember the statement, I will make a covenant with you, right? So we see that in the text. God forms a gracious covenant with Noah. Number two, now this is significant for my argument, and, and I'm going to make much of it. Now, perhaps to you, you think I make too much of it, and, and that's, that, that's for your evaluations. But I am going to make much of it. Number two, Noah's wife and his sons and their wives were included in this gracious covenant. Now, you know that because back in the text, we looked at it. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. Okay, great. You and I, we're working this out. You're going to do this, this, and this, and enter into that. And who's coming in with you? Your wife is coming. Your boys are coming. And your boys' wives are coming. This unit here are coming in. Why? This is a major piece going forward. I'm going to argue that that, that what you're seeing here in Genesis 6 corresponds to what you're being told out here in 1 Peter. And that these two things are working in tandem. Why did they get to come with Noah? Answer. Purely because... 
they belonged to Noah. You can go back to the text and the, the way that you develop that from six, uh, chapter 6 and into 7, you see the language repeat, 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 repeat. I'm making a covenant with you. And based on this, you and me, they come and they come. Then you go down through the text. My covenant is with you. And they come into the ark with you. And again and again and again and again. To where clearly between 6 and 7, you see the picture in the portrait that is painted. These folks are coming in purely because they are connected to Noah. Again, that's going to be significant for my rationale going forward. Number three, though. Number three, the third piece. Number one, God forms a gracious covenant with Noah, of which we know. Number two, Noah's family is included because they belong to Noah, purely because they belong to Noah. And number three, God's dealings with Noah forms a pattern. God's dealings with Noah forms a pattern, which we then see throughout Scripture. So what is the pattern? So it's saying God enters into covenant with Noah. Those folks who belong to Noah are getting in on Noah's uh, coattails. What is the pattern then? If we say this structure, God entering into covenant, and little ones or folks who are in his household are in on that, what is the pattern? It is this. I give it to you in summary form, and then we'll build upon it in just a few moments. But the pattern that emerges from one text across 66 canonical books. The pattern that emerges based on this where Peter can with full confidence say baptism corresponds to this is this. The head of a household spiritually represents all his dependent members. I'm going to improve upon that statement, I hope, again, as I seek to persuade. I'm going to improve upon it. It's not an obscure statement or an obscure evaluation from a singular text. Again, I'm arguing if you lay to conscience and at least hear me out and consider it thoughtfully. You may disagree in the end, and, and that's reasonable. We're well within the bounds of reason and orthodoxy, one with another as we walk hand in glove. Um, so I'm not suggesting on the one hand that when I persuade you, you finally learn something. I, 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 I don't wish to even approach a topic like that. I do hope to convince you because I do believe it to be correct. But as always, we extend a measure of grace within our relations that I respect you and you me. And we walk as a body of believers committed one with another as Christ is the center of our church. But again, I seek to persuade that the head of a household spiritually represents all his dependent members. Now, further building on 1 Peter 3, we asked three weeks ago. I prompted the question, and then we simply had time to begin to answer the question. So I want to pick up there with you because we began answering this question, but I only was able to introduce the answer I want to advance the answer a little further with you this morning. And then next week, I really think, hopefully, we can conclude. Um, but sometimes we take the long way around. Hopefully, we can get there next week. We asked this question, and we began to answer it. And here's the question, and then I'll provide the answer that is initial. 
the, the, the question is this. How exactly, not, not in proximity, but how exactly were all eight persons brought safely through the water? We have to be asking this question because we're prompted that eight persons came through the water safely. Yes, we got it. Yes, it's there. It's not troubling to us or hard to understand it, except when the next statement is, which corresponds to baptism? Now we're like, oh, okay. How then, if it corresponds to baptism, how then, exactly, not in generality, but how exactly were all eight persons brought safely through the water in a measure that corresponds to Christian baptism? The answer is twofold. The answer is twofold. And again, I, I, I introduced these two answers, um, but I didn't complete my time on them. So I wish to pick up there this morning. H how exactly were eight persons brought safely through the water? The answer is twofold. Number one, they were brought through safely physically. They were safe physically. That, that, that's the Captain Obvious one. We, we all know that. That, that. That's not doing the hard uh, spade work. If you figure the text, the whole earth was cleansed with water and no one saved themselves by swimming. They didn't drown. They were safe. How? You'd be like, call on me. Yes, you in the back. Physically, you're like, yes. All right. Everyone's like, yeah, that's right. One in the, we're all tracking. Yes, they were safe physically. That, that, that's straightforward. But it's not altogether uh, isolated that they were saved physically. It also comes to bear in the second manner within which they were brought safely through the water. And the answer, number two, is they were safe spiritually. They were safe spiritually. Now, I wish you to stay with me all the way through these bits and pieces because they do add up to a sum total of which I have already told you what my sum goal is that you would see your little ones in the place of God's gracious covenant. And indeed, what is given to them and provided for them is the sign of that said covenant, which is baptism. This is the rationale. They were saved spiritually. Let's consider this just for a moment, because perhaps you are asking right now as I'm building my case, I'm building the rationale. I want to provide as many layers of detail so that you can then kind of do the tallying, add them up, and see if it equals the sum that I'm laying together. Or if perhaps I've added one too many, or I've subtracted one too many, or I just am altogether lost in my math. But I want to provide them for you each and every step of the way for your evaluations. So let us consider just for a moment, how can we conclude? Uh, so you're saying to me, perhaps you saying this to me, Adam, how can you conclude that those who were with Noah in the ark were in a place of spiritual safety. How can you conclude that? Perhaps you guess that, or you may intimate in that direction. But how do you measure something like that? How do you measure, indeed, that these eight folk were safe spiritually in that ark? And we're supposed to deduce that from the text. How can you measure that or determine that at all? I wish to help you in the evaluation. I do so with a quote from Calvin. And I'm going to use this and build upon it. Consider it with me just for a moment. Calvin writes of this. 
by this covenant, and now what covenant is he talking? He's talking of the covenant that God made with Noah. Hey, Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And, and, and Noah's like, yeah, great, I'm going to build the ark. And it's like, okay, great, we'll enter into it with your family. But he's talking about this covenant, arrangement. We're asking the question, how do we know that they're spiritually in a place of safety by being within the walls of the ark? Calvin, by this covenant, God commits himself to save the community. Right? Which community? All eight persons. By this covenant with Noah, God commits himself to save this little community. And then Calvin continues. And to bestow on them his holy kingdom in the ark. So consider this with me just for a moment. That by this covenant, God commits to save the community. Um, we're not exactly sure, and you know the, the, as the story goes. The water subsides, the ark gets breached, and uh, life, uh, the water continues to recede, and then life continues on post-ark. Here we are today. So we know that in the story of the ark. Yet you remember there's a particular episode there with Noah, uh, who all we gather from the event is he drank a bit too much wine, uh, for whatever reason, uh, being out of the ark and um, appeared uh, naked in his tent. You remember this. And then there's this awkward episode that uh, commentators uh, for, for centuries aren't sure exactly what all transpired, and it goes a few different ways. Either way, the episode's weird. And it's Ham, and he sees his father's nakedness. What we gather best from that is, I, I, what I, where, from where I'm perched, I think, it, again, the simpler reading, the better. Uh, he, he, he trashed his father to his brothers, uh, and, and, and they stood up for him, did what was appropriate to cover him. And Noah awake to hear the story and the, the trashing that went on, and Ham is in trouble, but his son will be the one who will bear the brunt. When we speak of salvation in terms of the ark, of Calvin saying, by this covenant, God commits himself to save the community— what we're speaking of salvation here is through physical deliverance. We're not sure. Does that, does that story point to the fact that Ham was unbelieving? I, 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 don't, I don't know. Is it an act that, is, that, it, that, it, that speaks of his life of belief? No, it isn't. In other words, can we conclude that God saved the community spiritually by putting them all on the ark? The answer is no. We're, we just don't have access to no. But can we speak of that community, all eight persons being saved physically? Yes, we can. But it goes further than that. It also, Calvin says, he bestowed on them his holy kingdom in the ark. To my point of saying, those eight persons belonging to God's kingdom in the ark were given every opportunity by being in the ark to hear the words of promise. Repent of sinful unbelief and receive and rest upon God for salvation. I want you to like draw an analogy now a little bit in your mind between the place of physical and spiritual safety 
where we're unsure of all eight persons' individual salvation within the ark. We're unsure, right? We don't have access to it. There's eight of them that are being saved. We're unsure of exactly, are they the elect? Are they mystically connected to Christ through faith, through the promises that God has made to them? We're unsure. But we also do know they're physically in a place of safety. They're in a place of the kingdom, wherein this community is continuing on through faith as Noah, the man who is leading and the head of that covenant remains. And then you think, what benefit was there spiritually to them in that ark? but that they were in a place, as I said, to hear the words of promise, perhaps even preached by Noah. Why would we assume Noah would preach the words of promise? Do you remember he's considered a preacher in his generation? The New Testament referring to him as a preacher of righteousness? You see, they had opportunity to hear the preaching of the promises. They weren't in the ark simply because they had laid hold of those promises. We're uncertain as to that fact, and the episode with Ham kind of gestures in that direction. We're really uncertain. But they were given an opportunity through Noah to be present within the ark and spiritually benefit, hearing the preaching of the promises, an opportunity thereby, once hearing promise, to repent of sinful unbelief and to receive and rest upon God for true salvation. You see... Being physically set apart in the ark gave them opportunity to be spiritually set apart as well. Baptism brings one into a place of spiritual safety. I'll say more on that in just a few moments. Again, it is all three of these elements that I have mentioned to you. God forming a covenant with Noah. Noah as the covenant head, whereby his family comes into the covenant because of him. And thirdly, that this forms a pattern. I want to take these three elements for a few moments and speak specifically of how these three elements correspond to Christian baptism. Again, at this point, I do, my sincerest desire for all is that you rejoice over the sacrament of baptism. Uh, whether we agree on its applicants and the covenantal structure or not, again, I make no bones about it. I seek to persuade you. And I'll do so again and again and again, given the opportunity. And not because I want to win, or we're not even necessarily on the same side, because we believe it to be true. So I want you to see how, when Peter says baptism corresponds to this, we're saying these three, three things that we learned to the account, this is how they specifically apply to Christian baptism. Number one, I'm only going to do two of three, by the way. Next week is our third one. But of the three elements which correspond to Christian baptism, let me explain number one. What do we learn about covenant baptism from Peter saying baptism corresponds to this? How do we build the bridge between Noah and Christian baptism? By number one, covenant continuity. Don't get thrown off by the language, right? All we need by continuity is that what was established here, it, it, like specifically you're looking at it like this. You're looking at a covenant here in Genesis 6, and then I'm using the word continuity just to say that this covenant structure just continuous across the pages of scripture. It's not God made a covenant with Noah. That was interesting. 
and we pick up somewhere else. I'm saying we see it and then we continue to see it continuous across the pages of scripture. Number one, covenant uh, uh, continuity. What do we mean by that? But the head of house, and so fathers, I'm I'm, I'm impressing upon you. Uh, Husbands, I'm impressing the same upon you. And and this too would apply to singles, uh, uh, like a single mom or a single dad due to any number of difficulties. Again, head of house, those within their brood, head of house spiritually represents all his dependent members. Dad, take this seriously. Be sober-minded. You will not get to a place after your children have gone various ways not due to a lack of influence by you because you just didn't care. Now, again, children go in different directions, and you cannot completely stop it. You, it's, just, it's a part of the mystery of how God works in the lives of his people. So you can't stop, but, but, but also, men, remember, you will not be in a place in the garden where you'll be like, it wasn't me. It was the woman that you gave to me. She's the one who didn't teach the kids. You won't have that. Fathers, be sober-minded about your obligations to your offspring. The head of house is spiritually representative for all his dependent members. Let me clarify with a few New Testament texts. If you'll go with me, you're probably predicting some of these, but I want you to see them. Why? Because again, I'm, not suge- I'm suggesting it's not covenant arrangement in Noah's event that doesn't remain with you today. What, why baptism corresponds to the Noahic event is because what took place there covenantally applies to you today. Let me show you, because you say, well, maybe you're going to go to some text in the Old Testament text we're unsure of, and things did end structurally that way. They didn't. Go with me, please, to Acts. Let me show you a little bit as the church is getting started about uh, covenant structure and baptism in the book of Acts. If you're in Acts, it's interesting, too, as we think of Peter's language in 1 Peter 3, where we're at, the first place we find is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Why is that interesting? Well, uh, on a number of levels. But, but one of the big pieces, you'll notice who's preaching. The individual, the apostle that we are studying now, his letter, 1 Peter 3. And then he says, hey, baptism actually corresponds to a Noahic event. And you're thinking, wow, covenantally? Yes. Guess who's also saying the same in Acts chapter 2? Peter. Again, on the day of Pentecost, notice how he speaks of what they're observing about the glorious benefits of the new covenant. Now we're moving from old covenant structures to new covenant structures. But notice there's a constant that remains. Um, Where can I pick up with you? Perhaps, uh, let's start in verse 36 of chapter 2. Right? So, So these people are witnessing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you notice that the content of what he's talking about begins in verse 33, really. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So so this is the pronouncement of, of new covenant blessings. So you're like, exactly, Adam. We're in a new covenantal arrangement. Where certainly in the old covenant, there was a place for the children coming in and the faith of the parent. But we're in a new covenant relation. And I'm saying, guys, it's still structurally the same. 
old and new covenant structurally remain the same. How can I get there? Acts 2, Peter is speaking of the benefits of the new covenantal arrangement. But notice there's a similar piece. Drop down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, right? Speaking to the covenant people of God of the old covenant. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, again, the, the, the apostles' letter we are studying, and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, notice he's speaking of the gift of the Holy Spirit as he was in verse 33. These new covenant blessings, but notice a constant remains. Verse 39, for the promise is for you. The, all the, the men who stood there in verse 37 and said, brothers, what should we do? The promise is for you, men, and for your children. Hey, Noah, I'm making a covenant with you. And these folks that are with you are coming in too. So the promise is for me, yes, and your children after you. Get in the ark. And then here we are in the new covenant structure. What should we do? Jesus is risen and ascended. He is the Lord, yes. What should we do? Believe and be baptized. So the promise is for me, yes. And for your children. And then they continue, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, a, 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 a clear comment on unconditional election. Verse 40, and with many others he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Get out from among them. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Again, what we see there is that covenantal structure continuously from children being included in the old covenant to children being included in the new. Go with me quickly. I know I'm running out of time. Perhaps you notice I am vigorously arguing I don't want tone to overbear text. Let it be persuasive. If you would, go to Acts 10. Acts 10. Here is an interesting one yet again. Arguing for covenant continuity. We're under number one. Covenant continuity is the rationale for where we build in order to understand little one's place in baptism. Interesting in Acts 10, guess who's speaking again? Our boy, Peter, the great apostle, the one that we're studying his first Peter epistle, and says baptism works like this. It is him yet again in Acts 10 who helps us understand and discover the significance of Christian baptism in the role of the new covenant. I'll begin in verse 1, simply 1 and 2 to introduce. You know the story, but it's at Caesarea, verse 1. There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, you remember the great doctor, Luke, is the one recording this and writing this down. 
Verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms, generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, the issue in chapter 10 about Cornelius is he's a Gentile, right? And so the question at this point in redemptive history is, is the gospel going forward even-handedly to the Gentiles as well as Israel? And there's controversy in the book of Acts regarding this, you remember. So here we have Peter being called to the Gentiles by the vision. And you, it begins in verse 9, and I don't have time to read it all. But then there's this vision, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, no way, I would never do that, my Lord. And he's like, don't call unclean what I've called clean. In other words, go to the Gentiles. He ends up going to this man that we just read about, Cornelius. And then if you turn over to the end of chapter 10 of the episode, so you're now you're looking through chapter 10, we're still talking about Cornelius after the vision Peter has had. And notice, I'll begin with you in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, who would these people be? But as we see in chapter 10, beginning of verse 1 and 2, Cornelius and his household are there. We know that. Verse 48, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. If you continue just for one split second into chapter 11, Peter recalls this event with Cornelius to the apostles and the church at Jerusalem. Here you see him appear, and we could say perhaps he's given this missionary update. This is what occurred. And he tells the whole story through chapter 11, again, of the vision. I was told this. I went there. I found a man at Joppa. His name was Cornelius. Notice what occurred in the reporting of the baptismal event at the end of chapter 10. Notice how Peter recalls it in chapter 11. Join with me in verse uh, 13 of chapter 11. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Again, what we see there very clearly throughout the beginning of the household in verse 2 of chapter 10 and midway through chapter 11 is that Cornelius believed. And as Cornelius went, so also his household. Look with me just a couple more texts. I really want to lay the groundwork in Acts. Why? Again, because of the household principle. You remember the great Old Testament text that many quote and enjoy, but it's significant even for covenant understanding. You remember the great Joshua. Um, as for me, and you recall what he says next, and my household, we will serve the Lord. Um, and that's no different here with Cornelius. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
Look with me also, as I said, covenant household um, is, is still the head of house spiritually, can indeed be a, a, a mom. Uh, we don't know Lydia's situation all the way. If you'll turn over to uh, Acts chapter 16, and we see Lydia. Um, you've read the story, but the, the, the gal who uh, is significant and instrumental in the early church, uh, a dyer of purple goods, um, Join with me if you're in Acts 16 to see the household principle yet again, even with uh, Lydia. Join me in verse 14 of chapter 16. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Extraordinary statement there on how redemption works. Verse 15, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Again, as goes Lydia, so goes her household. Or perhaps we could say, as goes Noah, so goes his household. That's why Peter can then say, you're right. Christian baptism corresponds with this. Um, let me give you uh, two more texts, and then we'll conclude. I have ten more pages to go. But we'll conclude. I really want this to ruminate. I, I, I want you to consider the force of covenantal structure and take this with you. Let me give you these last two texts. Um, if you'll look in chapter 16 of Acts still where we reside, um, just look over at verse 33 if you would. And you know the situation here. Um, the uh, Philippian jailer is suicidal. Um, and and uh, Paul uh, stops him from taking his life. And then, and then you have the great outcome of renewal. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You, Noah, and your household. Or in this case, you, jailer, and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Verse 34, then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. Now notice the weight of the text is still where we began with Noah. Notice, he began to rejoice. And it wasn't just him, but it was all the people with him. They all rejoiced about what? That he had believed in God. That dad did. That we are associated with the people of God. And dad heard the preaching. And was told, what do I have to do? Believe. And all of the family said, Praise the Lord. We belong. We've been constituted as the people of God because Dad believed. And we've been joined to them by the waters of baptism. The last text that I have for you, and I'll conclude, and truly we are done. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Can I take you to this last text just so you can see it in the continuation of the argument that, that again, the New Testament clarifies that, that what structure covenantally existed with Noah corresponds to this. And we see it again and again in the New Testament text. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where there's a dispute over baptism. There's a dispute in chapter 1 over, am I, am I, was I baptized by the right guy? Was I baptized by the wrong guy? Well, I was baptized by the popular guy. So I know my baptism took. So there's this issue like, hey, hang on, hang on, whoa, whoa, you're not of... Paul, you're not of Cephas. This isn't how baptism works. Uh, uh, it's not Paul's pledge. It's God's pledge to you in the waters of baptism. And, 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 and then notice Paul's kind of exacerbated tone. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I will follow Paul, or I will follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or, or, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he kind of recalls a couple more. Well, I did baptize also, notice the text, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know, I guess, whether I baptized anyone else. You see, we take the household codes, the household baptism, covenantal structure, and we see both Peter preaching it, applying it, Paul baptizing and applying in it, and then, again, clearly stating he baptized whole households. Let me say this in conclusion. When you look at the household baptism structure, and I, you see what I'm, I'm doing. I hope you see it. Again, lay it to conscience and consider it, but you see what I'm doing. Um, the covenant structure with Noah and his family, I'm saying is continuous across the pages of Scripture and is no different than the New Testament church. No different. No different. Um, we, I make that argument by saying, do you see how households are being baptized throughout the course of the beginning of the New Testament spread of the gospel to the Gentiles? I'm not making an argument that the, over who was in the household or not. You know, when, when, when someone goes to preach to the household and preaches the word to them, do we have the makeup of who those individuals were? No, we don't. It's neither here nor there, honestly, to me. 
And, and you may find that odd, but it would be odd if we made arguments from silence about who was there in the household. I don't know. You've maybe heard it in covenant discussion where they say, well, you know there was infants. If we look at the first century, you know there was a mom and dad and likely two and a half children. There had to be a baby there being baptized. You hear those arguments? I, I don't know. Possibly. I would assume children, but I don't know children. Um, but that's not the point. The, the, the point is structural continuity with the old covenant. It makes very little difference to, for us to argue and wrangle over who was there in the household. You don't know and I don't know. The point of the report is covenantal structure remains. It's for you, Dad, and your household. It, it, for, for the single mom who believes. It's for you, Mom, and your household. That's the thrust of the New Testament in sync with the structure of the Old Testament. This is how covenant relations continue. I wish to impress upon you as members of the Church of Christ, your little ones, by way of mom and dad, are to be rightly constituted members of the Church of Jesus Christ. It is for you and your household. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would aid us in understanding the glorious sacrament of baptism, that we would revel in its imagery, that we would rest upon its promise, that we truly have learned through the waters of baptism that so as this water does wash away the filth of the skin, so also does the blood of Christ wash away all impurities within. We hope in Christ alone as our Savior, and we rejoice in the physical sign that you've given to us to be assured and reminded and joined to your church of that great promise. And for those of us who have laid hold of you through faith, we rejoice at that ongoing sacramental meal of the supper that further nourishes and improves upon our baptism and continues to nourish us as your people on the pilgrim's way. Help us understand so that we will rightly apply your word to our families, to our church. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Give you just a moment there of thoughtfulness, and together we will respond.